Well, today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of the roles that has been, you know, foisted upon me and, and upon my wife during this pandemic season is that of uh, educational assistant. And so I'm becoming much more familiarized with aspects of uh, early elementary education uh, that I had forgotten. And, and one of those things that I'm seeing, so I'm seeing these different learning concepts being introduced. And one of those uh, is comparison and contrast. That this is one of those skills that, that is drilled into us when, when we're kids and we're learning to read and analyze stories, is take these two things, place them in relationship to one another, and tell me where they're familiar, and tell me where they're different. And this is a, a basic tool that we put in our toolkits, but it's one that stays with us throughout the course of our lives. And, and you know, when the teacher's doing this, they're, they're trying to make sure that, that we're, we're reading the text closely, that we're paying attention to what is being said, but that also we are engaging in what, what, what can be a very sophisticated analysis of, of what's happening. And, and this is a tool that stays with us, I mean, all the way through college, stay with me all the way through seminary as well. And, 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 and we say that we learn more about something, about things when we place them in relationship to one another than we do by just looking at them in isolation. I mean, it's, it, it's everywhere. You know, write an essay comparing uh, World War I and World War II. Or, you know, compare and contrast uh, the Godfather II and Godfather Part Three. One is good, the other is bad. That's, that's one of the great contrasts between them. 
You know, compare and contrast a couple of television shows that are similar to each other. There's Breaking Bad, and then there's Better Call Saul. Compare and contrast, uh, you know, the, the Popeye's sandwich with the Chick-fil-A sandwich. Compare and contrast Pizza Luce, Pizza Hut. I mean, it can take the sublime and the ridiculous. But it's, it's all based on the supposition that when we place two events, two historical figures, two characters, two things, two work of arts in relationship, we learn something about them that we couldn't when we look at them separately. And the same is true of our passage today in Luke chapter 7. And Luke arranged his material this way for a particular reason. He is, he's inviting us. He's begging us. He's daring us. He's saying, you need to look at these two stories together, two healings, and do a compare and contrast between them because you're going to learn some very important things about Jesus and God by doing so. And so we're going to take Luke up on his offer, but we're going to flip it on its head. And so instead of, you know, comparing, seeing what's similar, and then contrasting, seeing what's different, we are going to contrast and then compare. And then also see at the end of it how, how behind both of these stories it, 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 it are some very deep truths about the story of Christ. So first, a study in contrast and what we learn from that. And so, so we can look basically just at who are the main characters. Okay, besides Jesus being the, the one character who unites these two stories, who are the main characters? characters in these two different healing stories. And it's not the people who are being healed. It's the Roman centurion on the one hand and the other a Jewish widow. Now it's hard to imagine when looking at these two people, two people who who would be seen as more different. Roman centurions, they, they were the backbone of the Roman military. They were leaders of men. They were used to receiving orders and giving orders. They were feared. They were respected. They were wealthy. I read uh, somewhere that they would make almost up to to 20 times the pay in a year uh, of just a regular soldier. And this centurion clearly was, was wealthy enough that he could afford to have at least one slave. Now, it almost goes without saying, but we can say, well, he's a man. And so, in antiquity, that already gave him a, a leg up on the basis of his sex. And lastly, but important for looking at this story, is that he was a Gentile. And so even though he would have been what was called probably a God-fearer, meaning it was as close as you could get to, to becoming a Jew without, without going through a full conversion, he was still an outsider to the Jewish people and the Jewish story, even if he was a friend of God's people. And then we contrast him with the widow in name. She's a woman. She has lost her husband and now her only son. And so the picture here is is of someone who is beyond vulnerable, who had lost not just her family, if that wasn't enough, right? The people who she loved and treasured, but she had lost her security. The people who were duty-bound to care for and provide for her. And there's a reason in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when it talks about justice, it talks about a particular care for the widows because they were vulnerable to poverty, to abuse, to exploitation. And she hasn't lost a slave. She's lost a son, her only son. And in her life, nature's course has been reversed. You know, it's supposed to be 
children bearing their parents. Not the other way around. And so if you're a parent who's had to face such a tragedy as this, then you understand this widow's pain in a way that other people simply cannot. And finally, in contradistinction to the centurion, she's a Jew. So despite all of her relative disadvantages to him, despite all of her vulnerabilities, all of her hardships, when it comes to the biblical story, she's an insider rather than an outsider. She's a a, a daughter of Abraham. She's a member of God's chosen people. Now, what do we learn in this study in contrast? Two people who, who to an outsider, to, to our eyes, could not be more different. What, what do we learn from the fact that both of them encounter Jesus? And, and, and I think it's this. It's as simple and as profound as this, that they are an illustration of what St. Paul talks about in his letter to the Romans. In, in Romans chapter 2, where he says, God does not show favoritism. God doesn't favor the rich over the poor. He doesn't favor the strong over the weak. He doesn't favor men over women. And radically, he doesn't favor Jew over Gentile. He doesn't favor one ethnicity over another. And so what Jesus reveals in these two stories is that no matter our station in life, no matter our situation, no matter the circumstances of our birth, in him we see that God is with us and God is for us. That's one contrast. Here's another. There's a contrast in how these encounters happen, how they come about. In the first instance, Jesus is approached by the Jewish elders to plead on the centurion's behalf. The centurion recognizes that as a Gentile, as as an outsider, it would not be appropriate for him to directly approach Jesus, a, a, a rabbi, for his help. But in this instance, it's the centurion who is seeking out, actively seeking out Jesus' help. Contrast this to the widow who makes no such request of Jesus. She's simply doing what you do when you lose a loved one. She is taking her son to bury him, to, to leave him in his final resting place. When Jesus encounters her, when, she, when he interrupts what is going on in her life. She says no words. She makes no request. There is no group of, of, of elders or leaders to plead her case to Jesus. Jesus simply encounters her, sees her need, and acts in accordance. Now, what do we learn from this contrast? That God is both responsive to our entreaties, and he is proactive in his mercy. God both listens to our prayers and knows what we need even before we ask for it. Another contrast, who gets healed? In the instance of the the centurion, it's his treasured, valued slave. In, In the instance of this woman, it's her only son. And though, you know, if you've been in the church before, I'm sure you've heard this, that, that slavery was, in the ancient world was, was very different than shadow slavery as it was practiced in the United States. I mean, slaves were still slaves. They were still considered property. 
And even though you, you, you could attain as a slave in antiquity a, a relatively high degree of social status, um, you could be treated very, very well. At the end of the day, you, were still, you still belonged to somebody else. In the second story, the one who is healed is an only son. And in fact, the, the way the Greek reads in this passage, it, it, it's the same language when it talks about Jesus as an only begotten son. And so here was this child who was of inestimable value to his mother. One who had brought him into to this life, and, and now she was carrying him out of it. So this slave and this son, again, could not be more different. Could not be more different in terms of their social standing, their social situation, their social, social location. But both of them... And how Jesus treats them shows that they were beloved and valuable. And the further lesson here is that the people who are dear to us are even more so to the Lord. And a final contrast to highlight is how the healing happens. In the case of the centurion slave, we actually don't hear how it happens. We only hear that it does. We kind of imagine, we, we, we kind of fill in the blanks of what Jesus did. He's amazed at the centurion's faith, his understanding of authority. And so Jesus says, well, he's healed. And then it happens. But we don't actually hear that. We just hear that Jesus is amazed at the centurion's faith. And then this group who had gone to, to, to speak to Jesus to say, yeah, you don't need to come over. Go home. And they find the centurion's slave has been healed. Jesus never meets the centurion. He never speaks with him directly. He never has any kind of interaction with this slave. All of the communication is done through intermediaries. And the second instance, the second healing story, really the resurrection story, is, is rich with details. We're told that Jesus touched the funeral bier, the, the stretcher on which they would have been carrying the young man's body. That he spoke directly to the woman, telling her, do not weep. And that he addressed the dead man, saying, arise, get up. And he got up. And so Jesus' encounter with this poor woman was, was much more personal, much more intimate, much more intense than it was with the centurion. But Jesus' works we see in various ways both visible and invisible. But he works nonetheless. And I suppose the very last contrast worth highlighting is this, that, that, that there was a big difference actually in the, in the state of, of these two people who are healed. The centurion slave was on the brink of death. The widow's son was already dead. As so we could say, you know, healing the sick, that's one thing. But raising the dead is something else entirely. And yet Jesus does them both. All right, so that was our study in contrast. But now let's look at what do these events have in common? Now at the superficial level, we can say, well, they both involve Jesus doing an extraordinary act of healing. Yes, but we got to go deeper and see some much more profound things. The first similarity to note in comparison is that both of these stories involve Jesus crossing certain boundaries. In healing the centurion slave, Jesus is willing to cross the boundary between Jew and Gentile. 
Now, we've noted that the centurion never directly speaks to Jesus. He only does it through intermediaries, through emissaries. The centurion does not deign himself worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. But, but a kind of humorous turn in the story that, that's underlying it when, when, when we read it closely is that it, it seems as if Jesus didn't quite get this message. And so after he's visited by, by the first group of messengers, the, the Jewish elders, what does he do? He, he starts to go towards the centurion's house. And it only, he only stops when a second group comes out and meets him and intervenes. It seems that Jesus was ready to go all the way to enter the centurion's home, and it was only the centurion's face-saving move that stopped him. And actually, since we know that Luke was the author of Acts as well, this is a, an encounter that's kind of stopped short. Um, you know, Jesus gets stopped short. He doesn't do this. But later on in, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter heals Cornelius, or when Peter goes into Cornelius's house, um, that, that is finally when that what is begun with Jesus culminates with Peter entering into a, a Gentile's home and eating with him. But regardless, you know, the fact that Jesus doesn't literally cross the threshold of his home, he, a Jewish rabbi, does heal a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile Roman military officer's slave. And even if, if this centurion is one of the good guys, this is a big deal. And in healing the widow's son, Jesus crosses the boundary between life and death. In the Mosaic law, touching a dead body, it rendered you ritually unclean for a day. And touching anything that a dead body had touched did the same. And so in the normal course of things, the way that it always works that we see in the Old Testament is this, that, that uncleanness, that which is unclean, pollutes that which is clean. You go, to, you go into a Gentile house, you're defiled. You touch something that's touched a dead body, you're contaminated. But throughout the Gospels, and particularly in this story, we see that with Jesus, it, it always works in the opposite direction. That which he touches, he cleanses. He touches what is sinful, he forgives. He touches what is profane, he makes it holy. He touches what is unworthy, and he makes it worthy. And this isn't just, you know, something that was true way back when. This is true for us here and now. And that's good news that we need to hear. No matter how broken we feel, how unworthy we feel, how unlovable we can feel, an encounter with Jesus transforms us. Now, a second point of comparison between these two stories. In both of these stories, Jesus is moved in a profound way, but for different reasons. In the case of the centurion, it tells us that Jesus was amazed, or in our translation, it says marveled at his faith. And this is actually the only instance in the Gospels where we hear of Jesus having a, a, amazement being a positive reaction to something that someone does. There's, there's another example where Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith in his hometown. But here he's amazed at the faith of the centurion. The only time this happens. And so what is it about this centurion's faith that amazes Jesus? And so the first thing is that this centurion understands something about faith for us that we don't. That faith isn't so much about the content of what you believe, but who you believe in. 
When we think about faith, we think it's about kind of a list of propositions that we check off or that we've arranged our mental furniture uh, about our our doctrinal beliefs in, in the proper way. And while I think that's extremely important, I would never discount that, I would say that, that faith is ultimately not about that. Faith is, is about who we trust in, about who we believe in. And so faith is, is believing, like the centurion, that Jesus has authority over our lives. Faith is believing that whatever we're going through, Jesus can make a difference. And not just that he can make a difference, but, but that his presence in our lives is what makes the decisive difference for us. The difference between life and death, between sickness and health, success or failure, sin or forgiveness, alienation or reconciliation. It's Jesus's presence and his authority over everything that makes all the difference. And this Roman centurion's grasp, his understanding of that amazes Jesus. And I think another aspect of his faith that amazes Jesus is his, own, his understanding of his own worthiness. The Jewish elders, they vouch for his worthiness. They say he's a friend to our people. He even built our synagogue. He's worthy, Jesus, for you to do this for him, for his slave. And we compare that with the centurion's own self-assessment, where he says through his intermediaries, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And this perfectly reveals one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. The more unworthy we consider ourselves of God's grace, the more worthy we become. And I think we know this this principle is true in other aspects of of life and faith, that the more we focus our attention on something, the less likely it is we are actually able to get it. Right? The more we try to be humble, the less humble we're going to be. The the more we think about and focus on on, on being selfless, it's actually going to be much more difficult, and we're just going to be selfish. But the more in this story, the more we focus on what really matters, Jesus and his authority, the more that these other things begin to fall in line. That's what's so amazing about the centurion's faith. Now we compare that to what moves Jesus profoundly in the case of the widow's son. And what moved, what moved Jesus to compassion wasn't her faith. We don't hear anything about that. It was her situation, her predicament. Here was a widow burying her only son. And this so moved Jesus that he, at, he had to act. And he addressed, addressed her directly, unlike the centurion who he never meets. And he says these beautiful words to her. Do not weep. Don't cry. Says Jesus, because I have come to take away your sorrow. I've come to take away your pain. I have come to make everything that is sad come untrue. And this moment, this beautiful encounter that Luke shows us is in miniature what Jesus has come to do for all of us. To address us in our human needs, to wipe away our tears, to restore to us that which is most dear. And there's that beautiful phrase that Luke uses where he says, you know, he told him to get up and arise and this dead young man is alive again. And it says that Jesus gave him back to his mother. It's not just about healing. It's about restoring and reconciling and bringing back together. And to turn our mourning, Jesus comes to turn our mourning into a celebration. All right, so we've contrasted, we've compared, but now I just want to say very briefly about how behind both of these stories 
is the deep story of Christ. And we see that though Jesus was, you know, the eternal word of the Father who existed in everlasting, you know, glory and splendor, who had all authority on heaven and earth, what did he do? He took on the form of a slave. And so Jesus, in the first part of this story, the story of healing healing the centurion slave, he identifies himself not so much with the centurion, one who has authority and can give orders, but with his treasure, the centurion's treasured slave. And Jesus came to make unworthy human beings fully worthy in God's sight. And now we see after he's risen that, that he claims all authority on heaven and earth, telling us, just like the centurion says, you know, I can say to this one, go. Well, Jesus commands us in the Great Commission to go and to make disciples and to teach them to obey all I have commanded you. And I think we especially see Jesus in the story of the raising of the widow's son. Right? The, the, the son of, of the virgin meets the only son of the widow. And, and both of them are the only begotten in their own ways. And Jesus stops the funeral dead in its tracks. Just as he stops this world, which left to its own devices, is headed towards the grave. And he reaches out and he does something about it. His touch cleanses. His words bring life. And he tells this woman not to weep. Even though we see that, that at his own death, Jesus' own mother will weep. But here Jesus is doing what it says in the book of Revelation. When he says, don't cry, he is wiping away every tear. And he who is the author of life will undergo death. But Jesus, like this young man, he too will rise. And so I think the final truth that, that this comparison and this contrasting leaves us with is this, that when it comes to Jesus, Luke is showing us that there is absolutely no comparison. And he is all that's left when we turn up the contrast. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.